George Barna, observing the cultural shifts in America for decades now, commented, quote, It is hard to imagine a louder, clearer, and more direct challenge to the future of Christian faith in the United States. If Christian churches, pastors, schools, and individuals believe that a biblical Christian faith is important, not just for themselves, but also for our nation and the world beyond it, then time is running out to aggressively and strategically act on that belief before those who so vehemently disagree succeed in destroying the freedom and opportunity to preserve the ways of God. It's Saturday, June 5th, 2021, and today we are taking a look at the following top stories. An inside look at the inconsistencies of Dr. Fauci's electronic correspondence, the sad reality of the state of American worldview in 2021, we take a look at the ongoing Canada crackdown on pastors, the two anniversaries in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Granby, Colorado, and why they matter. And finally, we take a look at how much is nothing worth. Welcome to Lifering, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex and I'm flying solo today. Part of it is to test the sustainability of the project and part of it is to give break to our team who so far has put in a substantial amount of effort into supporting, researching and presenting the weekly stories. So you're in for a possibly shorter show today. But you're still going to get the top five stories of the past week that I believe matter to LifeRing listener like yourself. By the way, thank you for listening. It's, it's truly an honor to serve you this way. And I hope that you grow in awareness, you know, providing a thoughtful commentary on your own when an opportunity knocks on your door. If you enjoy the show, there are a few awesome things you can do. Number one, if you can leave us a review, even if it's just the stars without the comment, you know, it takes a few seconds, but it means the world to us. Another thing you can do is take a screenshot of the show, place it on your story. Or if you're tech savvy, you can even send a link of the show to your friend. By doing any of these steps, you automatically become the partner of the show. So thank you. Now let's take a look at our usual COVID briefing before we get to our top five of this week. So we basically entered into summer months and finally are seeing the effects of post-pandemic reopening. So here's my question. The CDC said that the vaccinated people don't have to wear masks. And we know that the majority of people had the opportunity at this point to get the vaccine. So much so that we're throwing all sorts of incentives at the people. So why almost 90% of people are still wearing masks? Either vaccines didn't make it to our part of the country or we have the majority of the people here immunocompromised. And I don't think that's what's going on really. What I think it is is... The fact that some people got used to wearing masks as a statement and are now feeling the anxiety of losing that powerful statement. And so as a group of people, they continue on, even though masks only help when there's social distancing, which by now, as you observe, have ceased to exist. Well, speaking of vaccines, slightly more than half of Americans have at least one dose at this point. Keep in mind, Biden has a July 4th goal. Remember when he said that by July 4th, Hopefully, we will all be able to gather in small groups, you know, with families and, and celebrate 4th of July. He has uh, a goal of vaccinating every, what is it, reaching 70% um, of vaccinated Americans by July 4th, which is why he named the month of June as a month of action. And since we're the second biggest producer of the vaccine, and at the same time, the only major producer to keep almost all of the supply at home, we are soon going to be giving them out to the world if the world will take it. 
On Friday, Biden announced that the first doses are going to South and Central America, Asia, and Africa. The U.S. will keep 25% in reserve for emergencies. Biden says that the U.S. will give away 60 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine, not yet approved for the use in U.S. That's according to Need to Know. You, you would think if the vaccine was, was so great, why would, you know, why all people are not flocking to it? You know, like it's a saving measure that it is. Why do we have to come up with outrageous incentives to get people to take the shot? You know, that alone poses a serious concern. Um, I was looking at the other news. Uh, according to CNBC, scientists may have found a promising new treatment, they say, for COVID-19 after an experimental oral antiviral drug demonstrated the ability to prevent coronavirus from replicating, the National Institute of Health said on Thursday, citing a new study. The drug is called Tempol. Uh, T-E-M-P-O-L can reduce uh, COVID-19 infections by impairing an enzyme the virus needs to make copies of itself once it's inside human cells, which could potentially limit the severity of the disease, researchers at the NIH said. The drug was tested in an experiment of cell cultures, with live viruses. There's there's a drug out there. Who knows, maybe that will replace the vaccine one of these days. Uh, New York reported um, zero new COVID deaths on Tuesday, which is a big milestone for them, for the first time in months. A huge milestone for the one-time epicenter of the pandemic in the United States. More than 57% of New York adults are fully vaccinated, but the vaccination rates have plateaued in the past few weeks, according to Robin Hood Snacks. Now, to put it in perspective, the number of COVID deaths... Uh, that already have been reported this year will soon, they say, surpass the 2020 tally. Now, this is worldwide. So uh, 2020 was 1.8 million. Now we're at 1.5 million. I think uh, what they're saying is Latin America, Asia, and Africa account for 72% of deaths. 34 million people are on the brink of famine because of the pandemic, a record 35% annual increase. And of course, it's compounded by the soaring food prices, the weak tourism, uh, these are real effects of the pandemic on the rest of the world, not just, you know, we, we experience the effects of it here, but it also impacts everyone globally. Now, TSA has screened more travelers this weekend than any other time since the start of the pandemic, according to Axios. Traveling is up by more than 60% compared to this time last year, and Las Vegas and Orlando were two of the most popular destinations, according to Washington Post. Now, I bring up states like Texas and Florida as they have become nationally recognized as leaders in conservative thought and movements. And so with that, here's an interesting, here's some interesting news from Texas as of last weekend. More than 100 employees at Houston Methodist Hospital filed a lawsuit against their employer for allegedly requiring all the staff members to receive a COVID-19 vaccine in order to keep their jobs, saying that COVID-19 vaccines are experimental and they don't want to be the guinea pigs. They have 170 employees argued in court that it's unlawful for the employers to require them to take the shots. So there's an example of a hospital, I guess, standing up against... I thought, I thought medical hospitals do require vaccines, regardless of what your views on it are. But I guess since it's experimental, this might be a precedent for the rest of the country, the rest of the hospitals, I guess, or medical workers to, you know, something to think about. This Tuesday, according to Epoch Times, quote, in order to encourage American workers to get vaccinated, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration known as OSHA, has suspended the legal requirement for employers to report work-related injuries resulting from vaccinations aimed at combating the CCP virus, as Epoch Times likes to refer to it, which, oh, which causes the disease COVID-19. Earlier in May, 
the OSHA website stated that employers could be held liable if they required employers to receive COVID-19-related injections as a condition of employment and said employees then experience adverse reactions. I guess at this point, you know, even even OSHA's like, if you're going to experience adverse reactions, we don't want to be held liable for it. So there you go. That's all for the COVID uh, brief for today. Let's dive into our top five stories of this week. All right, let's talk about Fauci letters. You know, there's like historical ways to name, I don't know, certain historical documents. Well, now we're going to have Fauci letters. Now, the Bible tells us in Luke 8.17, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Now, for some people, that's here on earth. For others, it's going to be in heaven. Zig Ziglar once said, When you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. When you do the right things in the right way, you have nothing to lose because you have nothing to fear. Well, for Dr. Fauci, the moment came. And as of this week, BuzzFeed News got a hold of thousands of emails through the Freedom of Information Act. Apparently, you can request um, through this Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA request. It provides public access to all federal agency records except for those records or portions of those records that are protected from disclosure by any of nine exemptions or three exclusions, which are the reasons for which an agency may withhold records from a requester. He passed all of the exemptions and whatever exclusions, and a lot of his emails came out. So BuzzFeed put it this way. Anthony Fauci's emails revealed a pressure that fell on one man. So they published this article on June 1st, and their article began with the following words. Thousands of pages of communications obtained by BuzzFeed News show how Fauci tried to keep Americans calm and develop an effective strategy despite conflicts with the Trump administration. Now, although the release of these Fauci letters wasn't anything grand, like, you know, it wasn't revealed that there's some global conspiracy, you know, to kill off half of the population or whatever, uh, there are some concerning points that, you know, we see in his communication throughout the pandemic. And I'm looking at this article by Fox News, which focuses on Dr. Rand Paul, who is currently serving as a Republican senator of Kentucky, who in response to the news of the email release tweeted two simple words, told you, with a hashtag fire Fauci. That's all he said. Now, Paul has repeated, according to, to Fox News, Paul has repeatedly criticized Fauci on social media and in interviews for his comments on herd immunity. We actually played a clip, I think, two episodes ago uh, of him doing exactly that. Uh, He also criticized him on wearing masks, even after getting the COVID-19 vaccine, and his dismissal of a theory suggesting COVID-19 may have originated from Wuhan Institute of Virology in China that has gained more credibility among members of the media in recent weeks, despite the early snubbing of the idea. Now, of course, we have come to learn that, you know, Fauci himself said that a modest amount, which turned out to be 600000 of federal grant money from the, what is it called, the NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, went to gain-of-function research to Wuhan from Dr. Fauci. And gain-of-function is, you know, the research that involves modifying a virus to make it more infectious among humans. And so research shows actually that between 2014 and 2019, it was exactly $826,277. So I guess Dr. Fauci was off by $200,000. Not, not a big deal. 
My question is, how do we expect someone whose words are taken as a new moral law to be so careless with the amount of money that was provided to the by the NIAD to the China-based lab? This money went to pay Wuhan Institute of Virology to study the risk that bad coronaviruses could infect humans. At least that's what some Republicans, including Paul Rand, assert. Now, if, if that's so, there's a host of ethical safety and security concerns. The article goes on to say, in, in an April 17 email obtained by the outlet, Fauci said coronavirus mutations that led to COVID-19 are, quote, totally consistent with the jump of a species from an animal to a human rather than a lab leak. Peter Dasak, uh, president of EcoHealth, personally thanked Fauci for supporting evidence that COVID-19 came from an animal rather than the Wuhan lab in an April 18, 2020 emails obtained by the BuzzFeed show. Quote, I just wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators for publicly standing up and share, stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a bat-to-human spillover, not a lab release from Wuhan Institute of Virology, Desac wrote to Fauci. And so this kind of internal bias confirmation went on to create a strong position against the lab theory in the real world. For Fauci, they, these were just, you know, as, as, as I look at those emails, they were just personal comments here and there, you know, from his staff, from the people, you know, from his colleagues. But it, in return or in result, they became, you know, strong positions against the lab theory. And the effects of what Dr. Fauci says has direct consequences on the country, on the well-being of, uh, you know, every citizen and on the world as a result. And guess what else is in these emails? Here's a quote. By, by the Dr. Fauci uh, response to, to a person who wrote to him earlier uh, in the pandemic. Quote, Masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infections to people who are not infected rather than protecting uninfected people from acquiring infection. Typical masks you buy in a drugstore is not really affecting in keeping out the, vi the virus, which is small enough to pass through material. It might, however, provide some slight benefit in keeping out gross droplets, meaning big ones, if someone coughs or sneezes on you, he said. Adding, I do not recommend that you wear a mask, particularly since you are going to a very low risk location. So what you see in these emails is the record of how Fauci has approached his stance on the pandemic based not on science, but on political, ambiguous, uh, you might even say arbitrary decisions. And I think that this is just the beginning of the analysis of the world's response to COVID, meaning time will go on and COVID will pass. The pandemic will leave behind, you know, certain changes, I guess, in society. But history will always look back to these days. And so we're, we're beginning to see some of that analysis happening. Now, on Facebook feed, one of my friends posted the little summary of, uh, you know, I guess a little image that, that was going around. Somebody did an analysis, a summary of what was found in the emails. So let's talk about each one. And by the way, I've, I've looked at the letters um, myself as well, and I found support for almost all of these points. Now you can go and find the letters yourself and read through them. It's kind of interesting to see what was going on behind the scenes, but I'll list these eight points. So number one is COVID was created. And if you look at the emails, there is, you know, plenty of correspondence that kind of points to it. For example, here's an email by Christian G. Anderson, who wrote uh, to Fauci saying, this is a quote taken out of the whole email. The unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, uh, like less than 0.1%. So one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features potentially look engineered. 
um, a little lower in the email. He says, I'll find the genome inconsistent with the expectation from evolutionary theory, meaning that it did not evolve by itself, but rather was engineered. Another email uh, is has a subject title, Coronavirus Bioweapon Production Method, which it says, Hello, Anthony, this is how the virus was created. And then it explains inter- intervarian fusion, HIV, and then it just lists a bunch of numbers and ingredients and so on. Now, the next uh, point uh, on this little summary that there was is that hydro, let's see, hydroxychloroquine is a drug that will cure COVID. So there was apparently correspondence where he was aware that in 2015, it has been shown effective against actually uh, suppressing coronaviruses. Number three is that there is no such thing as asymptomatic spread. There are emails where Fauci specifically says it, you know, outright. Number four, I just read to you, face masks do not work. Number five, no lockdowns were necessary. There were emails of him talking that the measures are a little too extreme. And uh, number six, there was correspondence between him and Facebook. And this summary goes to assert that Facebook purposely promoted authoritarian propaganda regarding COVID. Number seven, we were not given actual numbers of those who died as a result of COVID. And number eight, the... Uh, summary asserts is that Fauci knowingly lied to Congress last month, which even by just looking into, you know, the fact how much money went to the research, you can already see that there was lying. And even tracing his whole conversation history, you could see that he just keeps changing his mind. So what do I take, you know, out of all of this? Well, I understand that God is in control. And in his grand plan, this had to happen. Since it comes time when we get so comfortable with what we have in our lives that we become indifferent and complacent. So COVID shook us, you know, all out of our 21st century, you know, slide towards our perceived greatness, you know, progress and so on. It also uncovered some deep issues with our government, with our media, with our churches, economy, and so on. And Dr. Fauci is an example of someone who gets criticized now because he didn't tell the complete story apparently lied and covered up and made up some things to appeal to one political wing. I'll end it by this quote from Candace Owens in relation to this um, Fauci letters. Uh, She went on to say, quote, Firing Fauci does not go far enough. Anthony Fauci needs to be tried and put into federal prison. He ruined millions of lives via depression, bankruptcy, suicide, and preyed on children via school. He and many others have taken a part in the crime of the century. We all knew it. Here at LifeRing, we pick stories and current events that not just stayed at the top of the headlines past week, but stories that uncovered deep issues with our society, culture, and worldviews. So here's a topic that wasn't main, you know, really at the top of the headlines, but nevertheless points to a growing problem in America. Now, I begin with this report titled... American Worldview Inventory 2021. It was released by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University a few weeks ago. The report is a first of its kind. Now, Arizona Christian University says that it's the first ever national survey of biblical and competing worldviews. So there's like eight worldviews that they're studying. I read through the report and it's sobering, yet not entirely surprising. I think the conservative circles have been noticing this shift over the past few decades. And so what we see today is flowers 
blooming from the seeds that Gen X planted and cultivated. Now, I came across the report as, as it was highlighted by Christian Headlines on Friday, June 4th, under the title, One Third of Young People Says That Individual Property Ownership Is Wrong, New Poll Shows. And they go on to say in the article, quote, Individual property rights are a hallmark of U.S. Constitution, but one third of young adults believe the concept is unfair. The poll found that 35% of millennials and 34% of Gen Xers say that they believe that individual ownership of property facilitates economic injustice. That's compared to 13% of boomers and 16% of builders. So if that's by itself is not, you know, mind-blowing, then I don't know what is. Here are a few, you know, highlights that I found from the report. When they were asked to describe the kind of world that millennials are seeking... Uh, Barna outlined seven components to the millennials' outlook. Take a listen to these. So number one, government should continue to expand its reach, authority, power, and spending in order to facilitate a more desirable way of living. Expansion of government. Number two, public policies and programs should be more flexible and fluid, but the syncretic worldviews they possess means that American culture would also be less predictable and consistent than in the past owing to the inherently contradictory worldview positions adopted by Americans. So what this means is that the, the difference between the previous generations, starting all the way from the greatest generation in the beginning of 1900s, all the way to us is that we've been shifting so much in our worldviews that we don't have the stability. We're not united enough in order for anything to stick or even show meaningful results. We just want to constantly want to, you know, have these flexible and fluid policies that reflect whatever we feel like today, whatever the weather is like outside. They go on to say, uh, point number three, more episodes of violence and combativeness across the nation attributable to the self-righteousness and sense of personal sovereignty maintained by the emerging adults combined with with their dismissal of legitimacy of institutional authority is causing them to be unwilling to compromise and to feel that not getting their way is a personal threat or challenge. Now, this goes to, to point out how everybody sort of nowadays takes things very personal. If, uh, you know, a person gets up on a liberal media and speaks about something that they feel, you know, the world is in, unjust towards them, the world is unjust. Number four says political tensions will remain Significant in the short term due to the divergent views of core perspectives related to national vision, disdain for compromise, national moral recalibrations, and the revisions of U.S. history. So that's kind of self-explanatory. And the fifth point was a redefined Christian community that will be smaller in numbers, less influential, and less economically robust. That will include changes such as fewer people and less money being designated to global Christian missions and existing privileges received by churches such as tax exemptions and land use exemptions being withdrawn. So the idea here is that Christian church, at least the future for the Christian church, is looking bleak. And that is due to the fact that it's being pushed out ideologically, institutionally. Number six is saying interpersonal relationships will be more difficult to sustain due to the declining level of trust, diminished willingness to compromise, heightened reliance on technology for communication, and disappointments produced by the lack of moral consensus. So this just speaks to the broken relationships 
that, that, that will be as a result, I guess, of our techno- technological progress. And the seventh point is reshaped family units given fewer moral marriages, increased level of divorce and separation, liberalized sexual morality, and the reduced appeal of raising children. And so the final point here is the attack on the family, on the, on the traditional family, if you will, and also uh, on the formal family unit. Now, also what they pointed out, which was really interesting, and again, this is all, you know, I, I mentioned communism at the top, but these are all changes that are happening, you know, in the moral fabric of our society. They also went on to say millennials are significantly more likely than older Americans to define success in terms of personal happiness. They condone abortion if pregnancy inhibits personal happiness, see premarital sex as morally acceptable, view reincarnation as possible, and embrace liberal positions on social and fiscal issues as well as liberal theology. These are the changes that are occurring today, but they have been going on for the past decades. This is not something that just suddenly dawned upon us. This is a result of parenting. This is the result of, you know, where the church has been or how the church has been, you know, in its place in a society. They went on to say they're significantly, meaning millennials, are significantly less likely to embrace key traditional biblical teachings, including the nature of God, original sin, salvation, creation, life after death, human purpose, and biblical morality. Now, what I see here is a generation that is swayed one way or the other based on whatever appeals to them today. It's truly a generation that had just too much going on so well for them. That God and morality became a customizable feature of their lives. And that's why communism and socialism are not far-fetched possibilities for the future of America. See, it didn't happen in the previous century because the people and their worldview was different. Today, staking on a, or standing on a shaky ground, divided in worldviews more than ever, it is not that crazy anymore to say that if, that if we as churches, as conservatives, as America First families and businesses don't stand up for what we still have, we might lose it all. Because every day we're inching closer and closer to the madness of communism or socialism, whatever the next program is. And you know what might help us get there? Take a guess. That's right. All-powerful, ever-growing, ever-evolving, the new experimental AI. I mean, artificial intelligence. Here's Elon Musk's current girlfriend. They're not married, but they did have a baby together. Anyway, here's here's something that hit the news this week as she posted a video on TikTok. Take a listen. I have a proposition for the communists. Um, So typically, most of the communists I know are not big fans of AI. But if you think about it, AI is actually the fastest path to communism. So, if implemented correctly, AI could actually theoretically solve for abundance. Like, we could totally get to a situation where nobody has to work, everybody is provided for with a comfortable state of being, comfortable living. AI could automate all the farming, weed out systematic corruption, thereby bringing us to as close as possible to genuine equality. So basically, everything that everybody loves about communism but without the collective farm. Because let's be real, enforced farming is really not a vibe. Now, at the moment, everyone's like, hey, you're living with the wealthiest capitalist in the world. Or you're not understanding communism properly. Or it's not all about working out in the fields and so on. But I say this. 
Today it sounds crazy. Tomorrow it vibes with the Gen Z. And the tech industry sets it as a new fact of life. And next thing you know, AI will rule the world as the next benevolent leader that can finally bring peace and equality to everyone. I think she might not be that far off in terms of what the future might look like. Now, our third story for this week is the news coming out from Ontario, Canada, specifically in the city of Almer, a farming town of maybe like 8,000 people. Well, the Church of God, pastored by Henry Hind... Let's see. Hildenbrand, uh, despite the health officials' prohibition against religious g- gatherings, which currently I believe is limited to 10 people indoors, 10 outdoors, or maybe 25 outdoors, they have met despite the ban and have done so repeatedly in the past. And obviously church members are taking the stand in defending against the attack on their freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. Now, because they've repeatedly violated these Ontario Reopening Act orders, apparently since fall 2020, and more recently in the middle of May of this year, the court fined them a total of $117,000 and ordered for the church to be sealed on the 14th of May. Now, I watched both the video where they first get summoned to the court in May, where the pastor gets summoned in November of 2020, and then the one where the sheriff, along with a dozen of assistants, showed up you know, to close the church. The congregation in both cases... Um, sang a good old hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, before politely inviting the officers to address the congregation. And it was a sad scene to see, since, you know, you've got these officers that are there to enforce the laws that were made by somebody who's so far removed from enforcing these orders or even coming in close contact with the people affected by it. The congregation was forced out, and the following weeks, uh, they continued to meet outdoors. And at first they had, like, 250 people then, well, here, take a listen to this part of uh, an update that the pastor posted this past week. But we must obey God rather than man. We must continue to have meetings, which we did on the 16th of May. And he now fined us another $66,000, total now coming up to $183,000. Then, uh, interestingly enough, the, the next two Sundays were not mentioned. Not sure if that's still coming or if it was dropped. I don't know what the situation is. But we also gathered on the 23rd and also on the 30th. Our uh, attendance originally was 250, then it it went up to just under 500. And then when the judge ordered the doors locked, then that instantly doubled the attendance. We are now at 850, between 850 and 1000. It shows you what is actually going on. I wish that all of us would look with open eyes to see what is happening. A revival has begun, an awakening is taking place. And God is using these things to uh, kick out lukewarm Christianity. So as you just heard, we're talking about thousands of people attending now. That's massive. What's mind-boggling to me is that this is not the only church gathering in Canada or even in Ontario. And yet, I guess for the sake of setting up you know, someone as an example, it happens to be this pastor in this church. Now, again, the, this pastor is just the most recent one in dozens of examples since the beginning of this year and previous year of Canada cracking down on churches. So now they have 188,000 in fines. And these fines are going to ensure that the government, I guess, can continue its efforts on cracking down on churches. Now, it is worth noting that the cases have dropped 700% since May 1st to June, to beginning of June, 700% drop. By the way, have you ever heard of any court summons for Walmart? That they have too many people in there? Or an airline company? 
because they sit in the next to each other for like in a closely what is it called in a close ventilation setup or against the public park or a beach over government representative who were gathering in bigger numbers than the public is allowed we don't hear those cases so why pick on churches why everywhere we have these numerous examples of essential businesses breaking the rules and yet those who gather on the foundation of religious freedom face the fines and courts quite possibly because the church is out of place on this earth and so so that's not a surprise it will always be you know in the way of any humanism socialism fascism communism and any other kind of ism that the humanity wants to embrace as the next catch-all solution for all the human ailments so i get it it's 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 out of place but i think there's something deeper here i think churches are one of the last organizations standing that have uncompromising values and take their stand seriously. And so, as observing, you know, the situation across Canada and even in our own uh, country of the United States, I think what we're seeing is people standing up and testing the foundation of their constitutional liberties. Whether it's, like I said, here in the U.S. or in Canada, people are doing so because the government, if not held accountable and pushed back from time to time, it will always swallow up every freedom they can. It's logical and it's just a natural course for a governing authority to grow, to expand its authority. And so what we see with this church is something that could, hap- could have happened here in the U.S., but it didn't. Take, for example, the Supreme Court ruling in California about a month ago where they said that California can no longer continue with a ban on indoor church services that were put in place amid the pandemic. Effectually setting a constitutional precedent across the country. Why it happened? Because people didn't back down. And continued to press the government. Uh, they protested. They refused to back down. And that's a healthy response within a democracy. Now, this video from the pastor was released on Tuesday. And he went on to say, Isn't that exactly what we should be doing? And no wonder the Bible says, Do not stop gathering. Do not stop gathering. And we all realize right now we're living a lie. What we're being told. What is being uh, uh, advertised there by... Uh, Dr. Fauci and others who are in big trouble. Anyway, we'll hear more about that later. But uh, how could we follow those people? We need to follow the Word of God. And we're doing that. And we had amazing services on the 23rd and another one on the 30th uh, of May. And we're looking forward to a wonderful, wonderful service this coming Sunday. Everyone is invited. We see people coming from far and near, five hours away, six hours away. It no longer matters how far it is away because when you... Uh, are anxious to get the food for your soul you gladly gladly drive hours to get it and one hour of food from heaven is well worth a long drive may god bless us may god help us that we would be standing in this time harvest time is is here god help us yes he mentioned dr fauci and that's why fauci letters are kind of important because the lies the cover-ups the inconsistencies that they report they have global implications And those who step up to such a responsibility, global responsibility, they should be held accountable to a much higher degree. And yet the liberal media, mainstream news, aren't blowing up with stories of concerns on Dr. Fauci flip-flopping and dancing to the beat of progressive ideologies. None of that. I think this church is a good example of standing up to the nonsense. They didn't call the officers Nazi or threw a fit. They emotionally, but respectfully, addressed the officers and the pastor himself, he recognized that even the judge, he, he, he went on to say, I get it. The judge was caught between 
a rock and a hard place, meaning they realize the foolishness of these orders extends beyond those who immediately enforce it. And yet, I think there's always a chilling question, whether that, where is that boundary of conscience? How far the enforcers are willing to go when they will be asked to enforce something more sinister in the grand scheme, especially if it escalates gradually? I want to conclude this one with a piece of the hymn that the church sang right before being kicked out of their building. I, although I don't believe this is persecution per se, because they're not being harmed just yet, it is nevertheless a historical moment of religious oppression that will go down in history. And here's how God's church sounds when it's faced with a challenge to its authority and its faith. Welcome to Lightning Round, where we run through some of the most interesting and relevant stories and events of the past week so that you, just like us, would have a good grasp on what transpired in the world. I personally think it's beneficial to observe the happenings. In part, it allows you to be culturally aware. And also, it's a good exercise in observing and recognizing the patterns as the history unfolds right in front of your eyes. And as usual, let's take a look at the few stories in the world news. So apparently China's ruling Communist Party said on Monday that it will ease birth limits to allow couples to have three children instead of two in hopes of slowing the rapid aging of its population, which is adding to strains on the economy and society. Now this is according to Associated Press. They're saying that the ruling party has enforced birth limits since 1980 to restrain the population growth. But now they're worried that the working age people... Uh, or the number of the working age people is falling too fast, while the share over age 65 is rising. And it threatens to disrupt its ambition to transform China into prosperous consumer society and global technology leader. So this is an interesting turn of events, because for the past 30 years, you know, they've been suppressing and kind of instilling a, a new mentality in its society. And I wonder how successful will they be uh, in trying to reverse that. Now, we haven't really followed this next story closely, but in Israel, apparently the opponents of, of the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, announced on Wednesday that they had reached an agreement to form a government uh, to oust him from office. Centrist lawmaker Yair Lapid said in a statement that he had informed Israeli President Reuven Rivlin that he had succeeded in forming a coalition of government with Naftali Bennett a former defense minister and a one-time Netanyahu ally, as well as other parties. So what basically is going to happen is they're going to be switching off uh, leading the country, these, these two guys who kind of formed the coalition. Again, that's probably something to look into because this will bring some changes to um, that part of the world and inevitably affect things globally. In the world of COVID, there's actually one, one more thing that I didn't mention in the beginning of the episode, but apparently coronavirus variants are going to be named now after the letters of the Greek alphabet instead of the place of their first discovery. That's what the WHO has announced. Um, and they, they're doing this because they want to avoid stigma. They so far have named four variants of concern known to the public as UK variant. We have the South Africa, which is actually B, what is it, 1351, 
Then there's the Brazil variant and India variants. But now these are going to be given the letters of alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, respectively, to reflect the order of detection. And with any of the new variants following the pattern, um, they're going to give a letter from the Greek alphabet. So I guess we're moving away from naming that there won't be no more China virus. I guess my question is, who's actually going to be using the B1.1.7 name instead of saying UK variant? We'll see. In a world of politics, in Maricopa County, the audit is continuing. It started in April, and it basically includes reviewing the ballots in addition to the machines used in the election. Now, this audit was ordered by Arizona Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, and it is taking place at Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix. They're currently expecting to be done by the end of June, uh, according to the Epoch Times. And the news now is that they've surpassed counting 50% of the Maricopa ballots as of this uh, week. Now, the latest conspiracy theory that's been sweeping the extended QAnon world claims that the U.S. Supreme Court will reinstate former President Donald Trump before the Labor Day weekend. This is according to South China Morning Post. Now, I haven't looked into the theory in depth, but so far what it looks like, it doesn't seem like there is an actual mechanism that would allow him to be reinstated based at least on the Constitution and the current laws that we have. But Labor Day is coming, so we'll see how that goes. Now, the U.S. government's long-awaited UFO report is here, and its findings, well, there's not a lot really to say about UFOs. The report says definitively that the objects are not American military craft. This is according to Time magazine. It does point it, it does uh, point to the possibility that they could be belonging to another earthly nation, such as Russia or China, who are known to be experimenting, they say, with hypersonic technology, vehicles and weapons that can move at five times the speed of sound or faster. Uh, the only thing they're saying is that if uh, these even experimental aircrafts would turn at the suddenness at which the objects change direction in the video, um, that they would or at least should cause g-forces that would rip you know the pilots apart or the or the even the i guess the experimental aircraft apart and the length of time that some of them remain aloft goes beyond what conventional fuel technology could support there's there's still more information to come uh, because the full report apparently drops before the end of the month but so far it's not very promising now president biden according to NPR, has proposed a $6 trillion budget for the fiscal year starting October 1st, part of his plan to overhaul the U.S. economy. Now, this means that he will run the deficit of at least $1.3 trillion a year for the rest of the decade. This is not even counting all the new tax raises that, uh, or new increases on the wealthy. It is the biggest proposal, budget proposal in recent history of, of United States, and it shows his massive government spending plan. Now, as you remember, 1.5 trillion is going to be towards funding education, IRS, Center of Disease Control and Prevention, among other things. Uh, 2.3 will go to American Jobs Plan, which is going to be anything but jobs. And 1.8 trillion towards American Families Plan, and which you've guessed is not going to do much for families either. It kind of feels like Democrats are using this as they're, you know, while we're here, might as well party all the way. And so, hey, $6 trillion will do that. 
Now, you might have noticed that uh, June is a month of uh, remembering the promise that God made to Noah, that he would not flood the earth. You've probably seen flags uh, and uh, depictions of the rainbow all over the place. Now, if only that was true. But the world around us is celebrating a lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and queer Pride Month. Now, I was looking at the letter that was released by the White House and... What stood out to me is that at the end of the letter that Biden released, it says, In witness whereof I, I have hereunto set my hand this first day of June in the year of our Lord 2021. So he puts the Lord and the whole gay and transgender and bisexual all in one sentence. And I'm just thinking, man, so it doesn't clash for him? I guess it doesn't. You know, he's, he's, what, he's, he's a Christian, right? Catholic Christian? For now, at least. Now, California is heading into a nightmare summer, according to Axios, and the problem is that its massive water storage systems are vanishing faster than usual. Their state reservoirs are 50% lower than normal, and more water isn't coming. They're saying that salmon needs cold water, farmers need to irrigate the fields, otherwise they will have less productive crops without water. And also, those lakes, they supply electricity. Access goes on to say if Lake Oroville falls below 640 feet, which it could by late August, state officials would shut down a major power plant for just the second time ever because of the low water level. So basically, the main point is that the Southwest is drying out and California's largest wildfires could start as soon as this month. You might want to know. Amazon is throwing its weight behind federal legislation to legalize marijuana and pledging to no longer screen some of its workers for the drug, according to CNBC. It all has to do with this bill that has been reintroduced uh, in the House uh, late last month. Um, I think it's titled Marijuana Opportunity Reinve Reinvestment and Expungement Act. And it would decriminalize cannabis at the federal level and expunge criminal records and invest in impacted communities. So you might have heard the cicadas are back. And with them, a warning from the Food and Drug Administration. Here's a quote from the agency. Yep, we have to say, don't eat cicadas if you're allergic to seafood, as these insects share a family relation to shrimp and lobsters. So as you know, since the cicadas emerged, there has been a bunch of recipes apparently on the internet. Some of them describing this insects the cicadas recipes as a rare gourmet treat oh in the news of entertainment here's an interesting one instead of one screen there are three one at the front two on the sides uh and it's meant to add the immersive experience that you can get from your home tv so this is what the theaters are doing now it's called ScreenX. it's the latest attempt basically to pull the viewers away from their couches, away from Netflix, and into theaters. Uh, according to Associated Press, it was first adopted in South Korea in 2012. The system is being launched in UK, and theater chain Cineworld plans to add over 100 new screens to the worldwide count of 151. So this is a new technology where essentially when you're looking at the picture in front of you say uh, the way i saw it is a car was driving and as the car is driving you see it on the main screen but on the sides you have two other screens and you kind of see the streets passing by if that makes sense kind of like you would looking out of the window of a car so there's some new technology coming now this was probably brought up numerous times in the conspiracy world but 
it's it's very much true. Bill Gates is releasing genetically modified mosquitoes in Florida. Not specifically Bill Gates, but Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They're providing the funding to genetically modify and release mosquitoes in Florida. And the idea behind that is that apparently they want to reduce and prevent the spread of mosquito-borne illnesses like Zika and Dengue. I don't know how to pronounce that fever. Now, this reminds me of a story that I read about Canada thistle stem weevils. These are little bugs that go on and eat Canada thistle. At least that's what they originally ate. And so uh, the United States thought it would be great to spread these bugs all over because Canada thistle is a, what is it called? A pest plant. And so they spread all these bugs all over the United States. And it turns out that instead of eating Canada thistle, they started to also jump and eat all the native thistles. And so as a result, it's predicted that so far, based on how much they have been eating of the native thistles, Many of them will go extinct in the next 10 years. Whenever we mess with nature, there's just always a chance that it will go sideways. Now, in the world of cybersecurity, first it was gas pipelines, then it was the hospitals, now it's meatpacking. Ransomware cyber attacks are getting increasingly close to basic American necessities. The White House said it's engaging directly with the Russian government after meatpacking giant JBS received a ransom demand from criminals suspected to be in Russia. Again, as we're going forward, you know, this is going to become more and more of a threat to, to our modern society. I think cyber attacks have as much crippling power as uh, an outright war. Now, in a world of space, there have been numerous unmanned missions to Venus, a second planet from the sun, and our hotter neighbor, if you will. In the past, 10 of the Soviet probes have achieved a soft landing on the surface, with one of them lasting up to 110 minutes and sending communication back to Earth from the surface. Apparently, the launch windows occur every 19 months, and so NASA is currently planning a mission to Venus for the first time since 1990. It's hard to imagine what we could do on that planet because it's it's engulfed in some very hot and poisonous gases. Now, in other space news, the U.S. Air Force wants Congress to give it 48 million of funding for a new transportation concept of sending supplies and equipment across the Earth in under one hour via one quick trip through space, according to Popular Mechanics. Basically, they want to be able to deliver cargo or even people to any location on the earth within minutes or hours. Imagine the kind of advantage it gives to US Army. That's just crazy. Well, that's all for the lightning round for this week. All right, here we go. Fourth segment is actually going to be two stories. I think both deserve attention from both sides, liberal, conservative. However, it seemed like both of them were highlighted only by the other side. So I bet that by now you have come across your social media feed, or you might have seen it in the news. There are these two anniversaries this week. One has to do with the racial uprising against the black community of Oklahoma, and another one with the government and one's man stand against it in Colorado. Now, I'm not saying these stories are related, only how each side, liberal versus conservative, focused on their stories. And as I observed, I thought to myself, both stories deserve attention from both sides. And both were horrible events that could have been avoided. 
let's start with the one in Oklahoma. Now, you can read more about the actual details of these events, and I'm just going to briefly give you an overview, my commentary to it, I guess. Here's how History.com defines the Oklahoma event, which has been named as Tulsa Massacre. I quote, During the Tulsa Race Massacre, which occurred over 18 hours from May 31st to June 1st in 1921, a white mob attacked residents, homes, and businesses in the predominantly black Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The event remains one of the worst incidents of racial violence in U.S. history, and for a period remained one of the least known. News reporters were largely squelched, despite the fact that hundreds of people were killed and thousands were left homeless. Now, the story goes that there was a young... Well, first of all, back in the days, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma was very segregated. And so... Uh, they had about 100,000 citizens, and out of that 100,000, only 10,000 were uh, African-American folks who lived in a separate part of town called Greenwood. And they were actually doing pretty well. The businesses were thriving. I mean, they weren't like super luxurious, but they were dubbed the Black Wall Street of the time. And so what happened is one young man, black, African-American young man, stepped into the elevator, apparently, and, and uh, there was a white woman in there, and, and she screamed and ran out. And so the police came, arrested the black man, and at first there was this talk about lynching happening in the square or something. So 25 black um, men arrived to ensure that that wouldn't happen. Well, in response, a bunch of other white men arrived. Then 75 uh, African-American men arrived. And a result of that, um, yeah, a fight broke out. And um, the white folks came over to the Greenwood neighborhood and destroyed a bunch of businesses, a bunch of buildings. The reports say that upwards of 300 people were killed. And it makes it one of the, I think, biggest massacre in, in United States history. So that's the story. It's a sad story. It's a real life story. And it is sad that it hasn't been widely known as an important event in the history of the United States. It also, I think, shows how far we've come a century later. And I think that's the fact that sometimes gets lost in the current wave of reverse segregation, where the effort is focused on digging as much of the old stories out so that the message of black oppression could be amplified. And truly, it has to be amplified. Otherwise, it's non-existent. Yes, I am a white Slavic immigrant. What do I know of the hardships faced by the black community? Well, that's the thing, is that there is this pervasive idea of ethnic gnosticism, not my word. Um, I'll play right now a clip of the doctor who, who brought it forward. But what I mean by that is that certain ethnic groups have special inner knowledge and only they can lay claim to it. Only they can truly know if something is racist or not. And to the people ascribing to this concept and this would be majority of liberal-minded population, this would mean that no amount of critical thinking, logical and thorough analysis by both black and white conservative scholars could ever offer a different point of view on the recently amplified issue of race. Even if it's the African-American community speaking up and saying that this is nonsense in terms of systemic racism. Here's an African-American, Dr. Vadi Bakum, speaking on the subject. I use that phrase, ethnic Gnosticism, to sort of explain the phenomenon of people believing that 
somehow because of one's ethnicity that one is able to know when something is racist. I remember back in the 90s, I think, there was a saying, it's a black thing you wouldn't understand, right? And the idea is that, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I sit down at the restaurant and somebody looks at me a certain way, or if I'm shopping in a store and the clerk looks at me a certain way, or if I'm pulled over by a police officer and the police officer addresses me in a certain way, I know when it's racism. And you can't tell me it's not. And even if you do or say something to me, I know if it's racism and you can't tell me it's not. And in fact, if you do something or say something to me and I know that it's racism and then you come back and say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's just your privilege speaking. Because according to the concept of white privilege, you don't know what you don't know. So there you have it. We all should be able to analyze these questions, these evolving trends, you know, study the, the, the social, I guess, of evolution of, of communities, uh, regardless of, of ethnicity. So while we should be concerned that nothing from history that is worth learning a lesson from fades away, we have to be wary of where it is used to further, for example, critical race theory ideology that has very little to do with the events which occurred exactly 100 years ago last week. And to be fair, it's, it's not that unknown. The story of the massacre, which obviously was suppressed by the white government powers at that time, it began to reemerge in 1970s. And since then, a dozen of books were written, some films were produced on the subject. In addition to that, according to NBC News, uh, quote, in 2001, there was an Oklahoma commission to study the Tulsa race riot of 1921, released a comprehensive report. And in 2015, the 1921 Tulsa Massacre Centennial Commission was created in order to appropriately memorialize the 100th anniversary of the event, which is this week. So although it's still being presented even this past week as an event that almost no one knows about, I think the hyperbolic language only adds to the current racial inequality debate. As if the United States still, a hundred years later, trying to hide this horrible piece of history. Now, the anniversary that has been trending across the aisle, so to speak, is something that has been dubbed by history as killdozer rampage. The funny thing is, I thought rampage was the definition where it involves a bunch of, like a group of people. Where in this case, it was only one. And the word killdozer doesn't do justice either, since no one is actually killed as a result of this so-called rampage. Surprisingly, History.com did not have an entry on the killdozer uh, rampage or on this whole event. However, there was a Snopes article, of course, to debunk all that has been cir circulating regarding this event. So here's the gist of the story, if you haven't heard it. Uh, according to Wikipedia entry, which seems to convey the most important facts, I did watched a few documentaries on this, so I know that most of the facts are in here. So the story is, revolves around Marvin Hemeyer, um, who was born on October 28, 1951. He was an automobile muffler repair shop owner who demolished numerous buildings with a modified bulldozer in Granby, Colorado 
on June 4, 2004. Kimeyer had feuded with Gemby town officials, particularly over fines for violating city health ordinances, after local officials made it financially impossible for Himeyer to connect to the city sewage system. He was subsequently fined for improperly dumping sewage from his business instead of connecting to the city sewer system. His feud came to head on June 4, 2004. Over about 18 months, Himeyer had secretly modified a Komatsu D300, what is it, 355A bulldozer by adding layers of steel and concrete intended to serve as armor. He used this to demolish Granby's town hall and the former mayor's house and several other buildings. Now, it is worth mentioning the cement factory that was about to be built directly on a road that was used to access his business. Now, the sewage came as a result of that. So what's missing is that he tried to petition the county and no one took him seriously. And after they, you know, and so he went on to sort of repay them. Yeah, he built this whole bulldozer thing and, um, you know, planned it out pretty seriously. And when it was all said and done, um, you know, Himeyer's rampage concluded with his suicide after his bulldozer became trapped in the basement of the hardware store, um, which he was in the process of destroying. Now, after they finally cut him into the bulldozer because it took some special tools. It was really a feat of engineering. It was chopped into pieces. The whole thing was chopped and sent uh, in chunks all over the U.S. to different junkyards so that admirers wouldn't keep uh, the pieces. Now, why would they do that? Well, because they knew that this story has the potential to gain traction among conservatives. In part, City felt the guilt in driving a man to such a point. The story of one man standing up to cold and careless government has a certain appeal. And in final words that he left behind on the recorder, I believe, he said this, I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. Sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things. Now, if you're familiar with Gadsden flag, that's the one with the snake coiled up and the snake is looking like it's ready to strike. It's usually on the yellow fabric and it says, don't tread on me. Well, in conservative circles, there are numerous numerous posts online with the Gadsden flag take on the with the killdozer as a symbol of standing up against overstepping government. Killdozer, just like the much more older and historical rattlesnake, both are symbols of the individual and personal stance against the tyrannical leaders. And so, as a result, this has been shared widely throughout the week. Now, the media and the liberal see him as crazy maniac bent on revenge. The conservatives dubbed him as the last folk hero to stand up in the fight against government oppression. And I think there are lessons here to learn from both sides. If people are driven to the point where they have nothing to lose, they will rebel and rise up. And we sometimes came dangerously close here in US with the whole pandemic and the racial and political divisions. For the government, it's a reminder that, that they are by the people and for the people. And for the rest of us, it's a reminder that personal revenge doesn't carry a positive outcome for anyone. Destruction and violence is not the best way to resolve an issue. And yet, as we see from this instance, it can sometimes become the only way. At least, it became so for Marvin. So, two anniversaries, two different focuses, two different groups. Deep division between the two. It's not entirely a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a good thing. 
It means that the conservatives still live on, and I would argue they're increasing in numbers. I, I think I think Donald Trump wasn't the one who changed the nation, you know, entering into office, what was it, like almost four or five years ago now. He was elected by half of the America. And, and it was because they were ready for a change. And now we have Biden, not because the nation shifted greatly, but because the left, through all of their power, backed by the big tech and deep pockets, to conspire together and never letting Trump to be reelected again. Now, if you think I'm stretching on this one, feel free to read a Time magazine piece titled The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. It's essentially an opposite of confession of how the left ensured that Trump wouldn't win. And so everything that's unfolding is actually not too bad because it encourages people to turn on critical thinking and common sense, to rethink their place in society, and it invites people right now to join the conservative movement whenever they're ready. So by now you have heard of NFT artwork, which stands for non-fungible tokens and, you know, has at least some kind of digital signature making the artwork, at least in a digital world, unique and one of its kind. Well, while there are a lot of recent examples uh, of NFTs, the most expensive one that was ever sold is still the Beeple NFT, which was sold for $60 million. Although they do say that after all the bids are processed and auction fees are added on top of it, it comes out to a total of $69 million. Now, to restate, this is something that only exists in digital form, as a piece of code, essentially. And it could only manifest itself within the digital world, also known as space that can only be accessed by devices that allow us to observe, but not realistically, or how would you say, physically possess or interact with it. I'm driving the point that it's almost nothing. You buy it and it's almost nothing. But then again, the concept of for us is, is not that foreign and it's not that far away because we're used to paying for things that we, you know, that aren't tangible and yet arguably provide us with value. So you might disagree, but for example, when we pay for software or for some kind of digital subscription or even when you pay a fine, right, you're purchasing some kind of value for yourself. Well, this week, the new level of paying for essentially nothing, has been reached. On June 3rd, the news reported the following story about a 67-year-old Italian artist named Salvatore Garau, who recently sold an immaterial sculpture, is what he calls it, which is to say that it doesn't exist. Yep, he sold nothing. I mean, he sold a piece of nothing, if you know what I mean. He might be even insulted by what I just said because he put a lot of work into nothing. Now, he says, according to the uh, Art News article, that the sculpture finds form in its own nothingness. The vacuum is nothing more than space full of energy. And even if we empty it, there is nothing left. According to Heisenberg, uncertainty principle, that nothing has weight, he told the Spanish news outlet. Therefore, it has energy that is considered and transformed into particles, that is, into us. And yeah, so it was listed for sale in May. And uh, at first, the estimate was like that is going to bring in six to nine thousand pounds. But after it was auctioned off at the Art Right uh, Italian Art House, it ended up being sold for fifteen thousand pounds or eighteen thousand U.S. dollars. Not bad for a day's work. <laughs> 
Now, the article continues to say, the lucky buyer went home with a certificate of authenticity and set of instructions. The work, per Garau, must be exhibited in a private house in a roughly 5 by 5 foot space, free of obstruction. And then there's, I think, a quote by him. When I decided to exhibit an immaterial sculpture in a given space, the space will concentrate on certain amount and density of thoughts and precise point creating a sculpture that, from my title, will only take the most varied forms, the artist went on. Whatever that meant. He titled it Lo Sono, which translates I am, which I found to be too close to how biblical I am was the way that God introduced himself to Moses, if, if you're familiar with the Bible. And then Jesus repeats it in the New Testament when he's faced by the mob that came to arrest him. So it also sounds especially weird when you place it in the, you know, along the remarks that the artist himself made saying, uh, this is a quote for him, after all, don't we shape a God uh, we've never seen, end quote. So I, I thought that was, that was just kind of weird. Now, this one, not the first time that he has worked on something, you know, so hard to produce an invisible sculpture. He apparently done it multiple times. Here's uh, what the article goes on to say. In February this year, uh, the Piazza, uh, I'm not going to pronounce it, a Piazza della Scala in Milan, the artist exhibited Buddha in Contemplation, a similarly invisible sculpture demarcated by a square of tape on a cobblestone walkway. And I saw a video, and it's literally a piece of tape on the ground in, in the shape of a square. That's all. There's, there's nothing standing there. Meanwhile, this week, he installed Aphrodite cries in front of the New York City Stock Exchange. The effort evidenced by an empty white circle was supported by the Italian Cultural Institute. He went on to say, You don't see it, but it exists. It is made of air and spirit. It is a work that asks you to activate the power of the imagination, a power that anyone has, even those who don't believe they have it. And listen, I get it. We're talking about art here, right? Art is very conceptual. This is not the first example of something that baffles us from the art world. But nevertheless, it's a story that makes you question how people are seeking attention, status, and preeminence and are willing to shell out $18,000 for it. Strange, isn't it? But hey, you're listening to something that's digital as well. It takes a bit of effort to create it. But unlike the sculpture, there is a purpose and intent behind this podcast. So if you're enjoying this free, virtually existing show, throw this virtual life ring to someone who will benefit from it. Well, that's all for the stories this week. We're so glad you joined us for another episode of Life Ring. Please consider following us on Facebook or Instagram. Just type in LifeRing Podcast and it will come up and you'll be able to you know, follow it. Also consider sharing with friends, family, whoever you think might benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we would like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>